Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. week on PA Books, Maxim Furick, author of Somebody Else's Dream. Maxim Furick is the author of Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, the Boys, and Timothy. If, if we were to go back to the area around in Northeast Pennsylvania in the 1950s as rock and roll is emerging, what kind of, what kind of a vibe would we see? Well, everything was sort of new and experimental. And, uh, you know, when rock and roll first uh, you know, started to be heard around the 50s. It was, it was something that was pretty revolutionary. Uh, I talk about, um, in my book, you know, Somebody Else's Dream, I talk about how uh, Pennsylvania, although Pennsylvania wasn't the birthplace of rock and roll, although we had Bill Haley, he did Rock Around the Clock, and that was radical, that was revolutionary. And when kids heard that for the first time at the, at the movie theaters, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to conduct themselves, and they tore out movie theater seats, and there was just a whole lot of violence and vandalism. It was something that was just new. And um, I talk about how even during the, um, the United Nations had a report about linking rock music to juvenile delinquency, and they talked about this uh, horrible uprising of juvenile delinquents and drug use and perversion and violence. And there were two people, though Pennsylvania was not the birthplace of rock and roll, there were two luminaries who sort of uh, promoted uh, rock and roll to the world, to the, to the masses. One of them was Dick Clark, and he was on the East Coast. He was with American Bandstand. What Dick Clark did was he had his teenagers dress up. I mean, they wore sports jackets and ties, and the girls uh, weren't allowed to wear anything provocative. So what he did was he sort of cleaned up the image of rock and roll, and also he played a lot of uh, sort of sugar-coated, lightweight rock. So that was more palatable to the masses. On the other side of the state, in, the, in the Somerset County, was Alan Freed. Alan Freed has the distinction of being the father of rock and roll. He was the one that pretty much like trademarked or patented the, word, the term rock and roll. And he had a radio station, uh, um, a program in Cleveland called Moondog's Rock and Roll House Party. But what Alan Freed did, he was the opposite of Dick Clark and what Alan Freed does, he played what was called black uh, music, race music, or devil's music, and it was it was hardcore uh, uh, rhythm and blues. But he helped uh, shape uh, and define the vocabulary of rock and roll. And both Dick Clark and Alan Freed were the uh, trendsetters, uh, you know, pioneers and promoters of rock and roll to the rest of the world. So. You know, as, as a Pennsylvania rock journalist, I'm just proud of what our, our Commonwealth represents. So during that time period in Northeast Pennsylvania, were local radio stations playing rock and roll, or did kids who wanted to listen to it had to pick up stations from, from outside the area? Yeah. No, there, uh, there were stations that started to pick up on it, but as you know, we evolved from uh, country music to what was called rockabilly, which was a blend of hillbilly and rhythm and blues, and then it became strict rock and roll. But with Elvis, and you know, he had that rockabilly sound. He was called at one time the rockabilly cat. And uh, you know, there were always stations out there where you could listen to the more progressive sounds, the R&B sounds and the rock and roll sounds. And if they weren't local, 
though they were, you know, the larger city. So, you know, teenagers always had access to that music. And as a teenager, I remember I always listened to WKBW in Buffalo. They were just, uh, uh, you know, power, powerhouse station. And disc jockeys were sort of like the superstars of the day. I mean, they just did a whole lot of really crazy, irrelevant things. And the t us teenagers at the time really loved what they did and what they represented. So uh, stations played a big part, too, in spreading the word of uh, popular music. Now, one of the figures you talk about is Joe Nardone, and, and he had a, a band called the All-Stars. Uh, who, who was he, and what was the band? Yeah, Joe Nardone was one of the pioneers. I have a, a section of my book, Somebody Else's Dream. I have a, a section called The Pioneers. Joe Nardone was the one who introduced rock and roll into northeastern Pennsylvania. He had a band called the All-Stars. His big hit was called Shake a Hand, and uh, uh, he um, would play at Sansui Park that had the most perfect... Uh, cavern. It was the most perfect venue as far as acoustics. And uh, he did so much. And of course, his band had that saxophone. And a lot of the early rock and roll bands included the saxophone before, you know, the Beatles and Buddy Holly, uh, you know, formed another template for what a rock act should look like. But Joe Nardone certainly um, is one of the pioneers and, uh, you know, um, you know uh, much loved. He's still playing. He's, uh, you know, in his late 70s and he's still playing um, with, with the All-Stars. Did he influence kids in that time to start their own bands? Absolutely. I mean, he was a big influence just as the Beatles were an influence. And, you know, uh, with the Beatles, when they first came over in 63, 64, uh, the whole world just sort of exploded. The world was on fire. It was a cultural, sociological change. A lot of these kids wanted to be like the Beatles, and so they bought these Stratocaster guitars, they went into the garage, they learned their mandatory two or three chords, and they recorded some brilliant songs that were called called garage rock, but that was uh, definitely uh, 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 came from uh, what the Beatles created. So kids wanted to go and do that same sort of thing, but what garage rock was, I mean, it was basic primal rock and roll. It was just raw. It was, uh, you know, a couple of chords, but, um, you know, uh, but uh, part of that rock and roll, uh, you know, uh, encyclopedia. It was just, you know, brilliant music. So you mentioned that Joe Nardone played at, at uh, San Susi Park. Uh, give us a sense of what that park was like. He was, at, he was the house band there is what you talked about. So Absolutely. what would it have been like to have seen a concert there? There would be, uh, you know, thousands of kids there uh, paying maybe 50 cents to go and uh, hear the band. Uh, Joe then got into promoting, and he would bring pe and people like Sam the Sham, Wooly Bully, and uh, that was the largest, uh, the largest concert ever at Sansui. But uh, he brought in Neil Diamond, and Neil Diamond, I believe, was from Brooklyn. He would drive in here, and Joan Ardone actually gave Neil Diamond his break, and his break came in northeastern Pennsylvania. And when they opened up the, um, the one amphitheater in Wilkes-Barre, uh, Neil Diamond was the opening act. He was the first person to perform there. So, you know, he was really uh, appreciative of what Northeastern Pennsylvania did to his career. Now, another figure you talk about who was local uh, was a young man who was Eddie Day in the Nighttimers. Who was he? Yeah, okay, Eddie Day. He was with TNT, and he's with the Starfires. Uh, Eddie Day is a, uh, a representative, Pennsylvania uh, House of Representative uh, politician, and also he's been with the band for decades. And again, uh, Joan Ardone and Eddie Day get together, and they do a, an annual concert that brings out a ton of people. And, you know, you're talking about baby boomers and also members of the silent generation. 
that preceded baby boomers, you know, who still want to keep the memories alive. And Joan Ardone and Eddie Day are certainly doing that. Now, one of the figures you talk about also was uh, Michael Wright, who would, uh, you mentioned that he was scouting nor Northeast Pennsylvania talent. Uh, what role did he play in, in developing some of the bands that would come out of this area? Yeah, yeah, C. Michael Wright was a engineer, a sound engineer for Scepter Records. And uh, he knew that uh, Northeastern Pen Pennsylvania was a, was a hotbed of musical talent. He had produced some of the, the groups there. I, I think Eddie Day, I think he did a, uh, produce a song for Eddie Day. But there were a number of uh, acts that he had been working with. And uh, he had heard about a group called The Boys. And so he went down to Exeter to Pete's place to listen to The Boys. And he liked them, so they signed them to a contract. What was interesting is that C. Michael Wright knew Rupert Holmes. And Rupert Holmes is a, a fledgling uh, singer-songwriter. Uh, C. Michael Wright had the keys to Scepter Records. So on the weekends, they would sneak into the studios and experiment with the latest technology, record their own songs, you know, just see what they could do with the reverb and, and everything else. And uh, they released a song called uh, These Days. And what it was was it was a song that had already been done by a group called Mode of Music. What they did was they stripped out the vocals and they had Bill Kelly of the boys just do the vocals over again. And it was uh, their first release and Bill did a great job. And uh, Rupert Holmes and C. Michael Wright realized that Scepter Records was not going to give the boys another chance. So they had one other release. So what Rupert Holmes did was he thought he wanted to write a song that would be so controversial that it would get the boys notoriety. Well, he wrote the song, Timothy, but what happens was the song became, received that notoriety rather than the boys. So uh, Timothy, which was, and, and my book, Somebody Else's Dream, basically started out to connect the song Timothy from 1971 with the Shepton Mine disaster of 1963. So that was just going to be a juicy type of, of rock mythology, and I was going to tie those two together. And what happened was, as the more I researched Shepton, the more I realized that there were other aspects of, of Shepton other than just a pop song about cannibalism. Well, let, let's go back a little bit and talk about the boys. Uh, who were who the members of the band? When was it founded? Yeah, uh, boys were founded um, uh, back around 63. Uh, Bill Kelly was the lead singer. Um, uh, Fran Brezina uh, was in the band, Carl Syracuse. Uh, uh, Bob Grisak was the bass player. Chris Hannon was the drummer, and uh, they started to, uh, uh, they were practicing and rehearsing, and there was a guy named Bill Bachman who was with WBAX. And so what Bill Bachman did was, and this was uh, sort of not, not unusual at the time, but he would bring the boys around to the different uh, record hops that Bax Radio had, and he would introduce them as the, the boys from Bax. So they had been called the Moffats, uh, and they changed their name to, to the boys, B-U-O-Y-S, with that nautical theme. And, and at that time, Jan and Dean and, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, the Beach Boys, there was that, that surfer, uh, you know, trend. So they went with the boys. But um, the, but the boys started, they had uh, really great harmonies. Bill Kelly was an excellent showman, had a great vocal range. And thanks to Bill Bachman, he took them around and, uh, you know, they got a lot of uh, gigs, had a lot of dances. And northeastern Pennsylvania at the time was just a hotbed. I mean, there were so many bands that were playing as well as venues 
uh, that would support them. So every weekend there would be, you know, numerous band, live bands playing, and it was so much more just uh, prolific then than, than the scene is now. How old were they when they started the band? Uh, I think Kelly might have been uh, 13, 14. They were just young kids, but they got, they got good fast. They got some equipment uh, to help them. And, uh, and then what they did was they started to play Beatles songs, and they would use two- and three-part harmonies, and that set them apart from other bands. I mean, they were good with that. So again, they followed that Beatles songbook, as, as did many other uh, rock acts of the time. Was there a point where they started writing their own music? There was, but this was after they broke away from the boys. So they stayed with the boys for quite a while. And then Bill Kelly and um, after uh, Bob Grzyk, the bass player, left, he was replaced by a guy named Jerry Ludzik. So at one point, Bill Kelly and Jerry Ludzik left the boys, and they wanted to write their own songs. And so they did. They became the Jerry Kelly Band. And then another incarnation was a band called Dakota, which was really interesting and successful and uh, deserved to have a lot more success than what they were able to get. Uh, another person you talk about in the book is Florence Greenberg. Yeah. Who, uh, who is she? <laughs> okay, Florence Greenberg, she was a, a large, uh, matronly uh, Jewish lady from New Jersey. And she was the CEO of, of uh, uh, Scepter Records. So she had Scepter Wand Records and also H.O.B. House of Beauty. That was their gospel label. She mainly dealt with a lot of black artists like the Shirelles. So uh, the boys were, uh, I think, maybe the first white rock act that they had. And they didn't really quite know what to do with them and, and didn't quite know what to, how to promote them. But when Timothy was uh, peaking in 71, that's when Scepter was falling apart. And uh, so uh, what could have been, you know, uh, a couple more steps of success, you know, just like sort of like stagnated. But Florence, um, she uh, would go after talent. She knew the Shirelles because her daughter went to school with some of the Shirelles. Uh, she was sharp enough to go and pick up the contract of the Kingsman. And Louie Louie was just such a hot uh, song, just a you know, controversial song. So she was able to go and have that on her wand records. And uh, she was a pretty impressive uh, business person. What would it have been like to record at the Scepter studio? Uh, not real good. Scepter uh, didn't have a high-quality studio. As a matter of fact, Lou Reed, when he did his Velvet Underground uh, LP, he did some of the si he cut some of the songs there. But then they would go and cut them elsewhere at better studios. So at the time, and you know, all the boys told me this: the the uh, uh, the, the technology uh, at Scepter was pretty primitive. There were a lot of studios, other studios that were a lot better. But again, uh, that. Boy's album, which which has been called Dinner Music, you know, is is coherent. It's acoustically, you know, uh, good. You know, uh, certainly not perfect, but uh, but it's a it's a nice album you know, with with good clarity. So they did a good job on on the Boy's album. How did the recording of that album go? Well, Rupert Holmes had what well, what happened was uh, Timothy came out, and uh, it sort of floundered. And then it started to climb. And I think the kids would listen to the song. They liked the music, but then they would listen to the lyrics and realize, wait a second, this is about something pretty grotesque. You know, It sounds like it's about cannibalism. So the song started to become a hit. And Scepter realized that they needed an album to accompany the, uh, 
the hit song, so they went into the studio. Rupert contributed, I think it was five songs. Uh, Give Up Your Guns was the boys' uh, second hit. Tomorrow was one, Blood Knot. And then the boys did all the others. And at the time, their influences were Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Poco, you know, Loggins and Messina, you know, groups like that. And those are the groups that they tried to em emulate. But everybody contributed to the uh, actual production of the songs. I mean, they, like, for example, Rupert Holmes, when he sang Timothy to them for the first time, he did it sort of like a slowed down funeral dirge. But they decided they wanted to go and, and uh, speed up the tempo, so they made it more like a Creedence Clearwater song. So they did that. And then nothing was happening with Timothy, so they brought in uh, Howard Reeves, who I think was the uh, band director for Johnny Carson. And uh, he added strings to it, much like uh, Elton John's uh, 70s, things like Madman Across the Water. So that strings just embellished. Uh, some people hated it and other people liked it, but the strings just embellished that rock, rock song and gave it a, a unique identity to go along with the, you know, the grotesque uh, lyrics of the song. So it was, it, was, it was a fine produced song and a lot of people contributed to it. How did you first discover this band? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, so that was 1971 and uh, I was going to school in Shawnee, Oklahoma, Pottawatomie County, and I was going to a small Catholic school and I heard the song Timothy and I forget exactly my, my original, my first uh, reaction to it, but when I found out that they were from uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, I mean, I was just like, wow, finally, our region got a, a hit song, you know, on, on Billboard, finally, you know, after all these years. So uh, I was just uh, amazed and impressed, and over the years, I was able to interview members of the boys, Jerry Kelly, Dakota, and um, I think I may not be unique as, as a writer, but you know, you go through ups and downs, you go through periods of despondency, you second guess yourself, you know, you have massive amounts of self-doubt, like am I wasting my time on this book, uh, will people like it, am I being foolish, you know, you, you question that, but when I did get back to it to finally complete it, uh, during the pandemic of 2020, uh, I put it together and it's probably my finest book, I mean, I love the book, I love the way it looks, and um, f the way it feels, and you know, 350 pages of uh, t of lots of research, you know, put into it. Let's talk a little bit more about Rupert Holmes. You mentioned him before. That that's not his original name. No, uh, he before that he was called Julian Gill, and before that it was David, um, I believe Greenbaum or. Gold Goldstein. Uh, Goldstein. Yeah. David Goldstein. Right. Okay. Um, but. Um, I met Rupert Holmes uh, at, at the 1980 uh, Bloomsburg Fair and had a chance to interview him. And he was hitting it big with the Pina Colada song and him and Answering Machine. So it was a lot of middle of the road, I maybe mean, like adult contemporary music. So um, the crowd was sparse. It was on a Saturday, it was on a September in uh, 1980 when I interviewed him and I asked him about the genesis of Timothy. Uh, did he know anything about the Shepton mining disaster that many people felt Timothy was about? Uh, I asked him about the failed Polydor sessions, you know, asked him, you know, uh, how, uh, about Florence Greenberg and Scepter and the, song, the amounts of records that were sold. So we talked about all that, but one thing about Rupert Holmes was he was the perfect person to interview. I mean, every quote he had was just 
perfect from beginning to end. Uh, just uh, little gems, little phrases. I mean, he was really good. And uh, I enjoyed the interview. And then years later, uh, uh, you know, we had a chance to talk. He uh, requested an autographed copy of the book. So I just, I spoke with him just months ago, so. Uh, what was the Shepton Mine disaster? Yeah, okay, that's pretty interesting. That was the um, 1963 Shepton Mining disaster. And in 63, just outside of Hazleton, three men were, were entombed for two weeks and only two came out. This was international news. This was, uh, the Associated Press called this one of the most important uh, stories of the year, and it was surpassed only by the assassination of President Kennedy in November of 63. But uh, Shepton had, uh, when I was working on somebody else's dream, uh, I started to research Shepton, and I found out that there were other aspects of Shepton other than the, uh, the horrible allegations of cannibalism. Uh, there were accounts of the paranormal, and there were accounts of the miraculous by Pope John the Twenty-Third. So all of those elements, the supernatural elements, uh, I put into my uh, previous book, Shepton, the Myth, Miracle, and Music. And the music, of course, being a chapter about Timothy and the boys and the connection to, to Shepton. Now you say that uh, Casey Kasem's introduction of the song was one of the significant moments. Uh, why, why was that so important? Well, he was the guy. I mean, everybody listened to Casey Kasem, and uh, I have in my book his, you know, what, what he, the introduction to that. But, uh, you know, if you were into music, I mean, you would listen to Casey Kasem. You would listen to what songs were rising, peaking, debuting, going down, which songs were staying uh, at the top of the charts for the longest time. But he was knowledgeable. He had that wonderful voice, that, that resonance, and he was just the, somebody that a lot of us listened to. He was, you know, one of, one of, the, one of the, another personality who maybe shaped, uh, you know, and helped to define popular music. So uh, why was the song about, purportedly about cannibalism, so popular to people? Well, good, uh, that's a good question. Well, first of all, um, it was about cannibalism in a mine shaft and Rupert Holmes has admitted that many times. It wasn't about a canary or a mule, it was about a, a, a person being cannibalized, so, so that was that. But uh, why do people you know, flock to horror movies and things uh, of a grotesque nature? You know, I mean, you could ask Jung that, Carl Jung would talk about our shadow self, you know, that maybe we go towards things like that just to go and settle down and, uh, uh, and control our shadow self, you know, the uh, horrible things that we think about or think we are or whatever, you know, so that, that shadow self. But uh, people like controversy. Florence Greenberg liked the controversy, and no matter, despite of what she said, uh, this was a, the controversy helped fuel record sales, even though the song was banned on places like WABC. So controversy was good for sales. When you told the kids that the song was being banned on a certain radio station, they wanted to hear it. So you can't tell a teenager what not to listen to, what not to do, what not to wear. So the controversy uh, did well, you know, for the song. Uh, you know, and also, you know, people like Dave Barry, when he wrote a book about the worst songs ever, you know, he included Timothy, as did so many other people. So Timothy had the notoriety of being one of the worst songs ever recorded because of the theme. 
Now, uh, you mentioned the banning on the radio. Was that a widespread thing around the country? Well, WABC did it, and that was telling because WABC was such a powerhouse station. Uh, Florence Greenberg and uh, Rupert Holmes thought that, uh, and the boys thought that if they would have played it, the boys pro Timothy probably would have sold another million, maybe 1.5 million sides. But there were other stations that played it as well. But uh, most of most of the stations did. And uh, you know, I've talked to journal to disc jockeys around the United States, and they would go and list the stations that did play it. There were a handful that that did not play it because of the content. And then what was interesting with Florence Greenberg, and I mean, she knew uh, what side of her bread was buttered. Uh, she had three different versions of the song. And there was one lyric, hungry as hell, no, no food to, to eat. So she bleeped out the word hell. And she would change some of these lyrics. She would have Bill Kelly redo the lyrics. So she tried to sanitize and make the song more palatable, but WABC still wouldn't play it. And that's what she was going after, because they were the big one. Now, the boys would end up going on a West Coast tour. Uh, was that their first time outside of the Northeast? Yeah, it really was, yeah. So things took off big time, and they went out to the West Coast, and uh, they played at the uh, uh, Cafe Agogo. And the big thing, though, was the Sapsot uh, River Fest, and that was out in, uh, outside of uh, Seattle. But they had 150,000 people there for four days. It was, there, it was the Pacific Northwest version of Woodstock. And they had the mud and the rain, and they had the drugs, specifically uh, a barbiturate called Stumblers, and the kids. I mean, these are like, what, 17, 18-year-old kids that are drinking wine and, and, uh, and swallowing these barbiturates. So there are a lot of people that overdosed and passed out. So you had that horrible drug scene. You had biker gangs there. Uh, what you had, too, was the boys were able to open that concert on two consecutive days. So they were able to get notoriety from, from that. I was able to track down a guy named John Caldbick, and he was a photographer for, for the Associated Press. And he took all these wonderful photographs of the Sapsot Festival. So he allowed me to use like maybe, I don't know, 10 of them in the book. And there is just great 1970s nostalgia. I mean, when uh, you know things change from the 60s, that psychedelic uh, love piece, no worth theme to the 70s that just got harder and edgier and really different, you know. So the boys uh, stepped into that decade, uh, you know, far removed from Woodstock and, uh, and you know, that, that psychedelia. So it was, it was a different realm. And if I could, if we could just point out the cover of my book, if I may. Uh, it's orange and green. And when, I, when my graphic designer, Danielle Crockett, first presented that to me, I just thought, this is like the grossest cover ever. I mean, it's garish. I mean, green and orange, that just doesn't make sense. But if you research rock posters from the 1970s, I mean, everybody was using the ugly orange and green. I don't know why, but, you know, Moody Blues and Led Zeppelin and uh, you know, uh, all those bands. So that was really uh, in keeping with the time. So I thought that the, uh, the colors for somebody else's dream were just, were, were apropos. So for this, this West Coast tour, how did that affect their career? Well, they got the notoriety by going out there and uh, uh, they had people that were helping them get these jobs in different clubs 
you know, uh, on, on, on the West Coast and in Idaho and, and, and all that. So um, the more they played, the more of a fan base they got, the more people that would buy the record and buy the album. So that's how, how that worked. Um, typically for the bands, though, they make their money from being on the road and, uh, you know, and working these jobs. So uh, the more they worked, the more money they were going to make. Uh, I don't believe that the sales from uh, the song Timothy or the album Dinner Music, you know, uh, uh, fared them well financially. Uh, maybe it did for Scepter Records and Florence Greenberg, but not for, not for the boys. But uh, it, you need, you know, a band needs to tour. You know, and the more they toured, the, the more they would go and get uh, people to know about them. Was the band treated fairly by Florence Greenberg? No, not at all, no. And um, if you take a look at Florence's uh, track record, and this is common knowledge, and, uh, but um, for example, she had, uh, her biggest act was the Shirelles, and she had a trust fund for the Shirelles. When they turned 21, they were going to get all this money. Well, they turned 21 and 22 and 23, and she's holding back, so the Shirelles had to go and sue her to get the money that was in the trust fund. Same thing for the Kingsmen that were on uh, Scepter's sister label, Wand. Uh, you know, uh, the Kingsmen had to go and uh, go to court to get the rights to their songs and the royalties that were being held back for decades. I mean, the Kingsmen were in court for a long, long time. So uh, what happened to the Shirelles and happened to the Kingsmen, I'm sure, happened to the boys. I'm sure that they were a shortcut on the numbers of uh, records that were actually sold. And to this day, we really don't know how many uh, copies of Timothy were sold. But everybody, including Rupert Holmes, thinks that they were, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the numbers were, were minimized. How did rock critics respond to Timothy and, and the band? <laughs> That's a great question. Not good. Not good. Um, and what's interesting, uh, if you take a look at the year 1967, and look at some of the landmark albums by the Beatles, the Stones, the Beach Boys, the Doors that came out of 1967. It was a year of extreme creativity and productivity. I mean, they, there may never, I don't know if there was ever a year like that, you know, in, in, in the history of rock and roll. So uh, that was 1967. And then a couple of years later, 1971, you know, the boys experimented with psychedelia in, in their album Dinner Music, but the critics were fierce. I mean, they really wouldn't allow them to do that. I mean, they were just like beaten up in, in Rolling Stone and a lot of the other uh, uh, publications. Uh, they thought that the bass line in Timothy was pedestrian. Uh, they thought that the, you know, the lyrics were grotesque. And uh, so the critics pretty much panned, and I have this in my book, they panned uh, Timothy as well as the, the dinner music album, which I think was unfair because there were songs there like Give Up Your Guns and Tomorrow and so a couple of the songs that the boys wrote that were good songs. I mean, they were, you know, nice songs. So, you know, maybe not top ten songs, but they deserve better than what the critics gave them, but, you know, that happens. I mean, sometimes things go sideways, and uh, no matter, you know, how much you pour your heart into a project, you're going to have people on the other side that are, are critical. Did the band get better coverage from the local newspapers? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Again, they were our hometown heroes, but um, the boys were resonating throughout Pennsylvania, and, uh, you know, they played extensively, you know, State College, 
uh, Pittsburgh, the Philly area. So they were well known in Pennsylvania and also New York State. But yeah, the, uh, uh, the rock critics, the rock journalists from uh, back home, they just loved the boys and they gave them some glowing coverage. So you had that, that yin-yang, you know, the uh, you know, back home uh, reporters versus the, the ones from uh, Madison Avenue or L.A., you know. Now you have a photo in the book of you with Hall and Oates. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us the story behind that photo. Yeah, let's see. Um, that was either in Bucknell or Boulder, Colorado. Um, and uh, I had a magazine called Timothy back in 1980. And what I was doing, I wanted to promote talent in northeastern Pennsylvania. So since Timothy was the highest charting song by any rock act, you know, from the region, I was paying homage to that. So I had met uh, Hollow Notes in, um, I believe it was Bucknell, saw him at Bloomsburg University, and then they were going out to Boulder, Colorado. So I was able to go out there and get a 45-minute interview with Hollow Notes. And it was in a room reserved for Justin Case. And their warm-up act was a, a band from Manchester, England called City Boy. And uh, so I hung out with City Boy had breakfast, and it was kind of neat, kind of neat to be on the entourage. But, uh, you know, I had kept in touch with, with Hall & Oates uh, a little bit, uh, but uh, that picture uh, I wanted to include in the, in the book because, uh, you know, Hall & Oates, Pennsylvania guys, I mean, just like so prolific and, uh, you know, still going strong. Now, you mentioned some of, the, some of the guys who were in the band. Was there a lot of turnover among members of the band? Yeah, there was. So right after he recorded... Timothy. Uh, Bob Griesick was the bass player. He quit. So they had to recruit Jerry Ludzik. And then right after Timothy was climbing the charts, Steve Fermansky left and he was replaced by, I believe it was Carl Syracuse. So that was the band, the group that went into Scepter to record dinner music. So not Griesick only did play bass on, on, on Timothy. So they did that. And then after Kelly and Ludzik left the boys, they were replaced then by Steve Fermansky, who came back. Remember, he was an original member. And, uh, uh, and also a guy named John Buckley. And John Buckley was uh, a, a guy that uh, specialized in Bruce Springsteen songs. So what happened was when, they, when Kelly and Ludzik left, uh, Steve Fermansky brought a Beatles sensibility to the boys, and John Buckley brought this... Uh, Bruce Springsteen sensibility. So, you know, the, the boys, in a sense, expanded. So they were doing what they wanted to do. They were doing cover songs, highly successful, uh, playing bars, you know, around the area and uh, uh, in, in Bermuda and, uh, and all over the place, uh, up in Canada. And Kelly and Ludzik did what they wanted to do. Their dream was to go and write their own songs. And they became the Jerry Kelly Band, and then they evolved into Dakota. And again, highly successful and well-connected to the uh, Hollywood and L.A. elite. Did that, that band, the Jerry Kelly Band, end up being more successful than the boys? By more successful, how, how would you define that? Well, did they have hits? Did they, did they make more money? Did they have a big, bigger audience? Um, yeah, I think they had a big, yeah, they had a bigger audience because they had another album. Remember, the boys only had that dinner music album, and, and that was in 1971, so time passed on, so that became passe. Uh, Kelly and Ludzik became the Jerry Kelly Band, and then their management uh, demanded, insisted that they change the name, so they said that your name is going to be Dakota. 
So Jerry Kelly Band became Dakota. And uh, as far as defining success, Dakota was able to do th two things that were highly successful and, and unusual for a, for, for a band. One, they were able to put together a 35-day tour with Freddie Mercury and Queen. And that was in 1980, so 35 days on the road, ending up at Madison Square Garden for three sold-out uh, concerts. So they did that, and they became friends with Brian May, the lead guitar player, and also Freddie Mercury. And Freddie would just watch them on stage, and he was just really sort of uh, enthralled that Kelly could do this night after night, although Freddie Mercury was doing the same thing. Uh, the other thing that, they, that Dakota did was they had an album on MCA that had been considered a landmark uh, AOR album, and they did uh, quite well with that. Uh, tell us about the title of the book. Yeah, Somebody Else's Dream was a song written by Jerry Ludzik, uh, uh, who, who left the boys with Bill Kelly. And it was uh, the name of the uh, Jerry Kelly Band album. And I always thought that the dream that Ludzik and Kelly had, you know, was sort of hijacked by, mainly by the corporations, by the record labels. Certainly Scepter wasn't able to go and uh, adequately promote them and, uh, you know, give them the promotion that they deserved and that they needed. So that was the one thing. They really didn't know what to, what to do with this band. Um, the other one was Polydor Records. Uh, they went to Polydor, and at the time, James Brown was their biggest star. But they went to Polydor, they, record, they recorded all of these songs that I thought were, you know, album-worthy, and then they re, uh, Polydor refused to release an album, and they had some flimsy excuse for that. And then the other one was with MCA Records, when they had their runaway album on MCA in 1980. Uh, it was a brilliant uh, album-oriented rock album that uh, was well-respected over in Europe, but not so much in the States because there was no promotional push. But with that Runaway album, they were able to recruit a guy named Humberto Gattaca. He was the engineer that had worked with Michael Jackson and all kinds of other people. They had Danny Serafin, the drummer for uh, Chicago, who was one of the co-producers, Hawk Walensky with Rufus, another co-producer, and then members of Toto and Chicago helped with vocals and instrumentation. So that album was smooth, seamless. Uh, listen to it today. It's just like, I mean, it stands the test of time, but it was Dakota's 1980 runaway album. Just brilliant and uh, should have done better. Now you talk about the Dakota sound. What was the Dakota sound? Uh, two and three layers of uh, guitars and harmonies. Uh, sort of like, maybe like Toto, like, um, uh, uh, like other uh, multi-layered bands, maybe, um, uh, maybe Boston or Styx. So very intricate, uh, not just two or three chords, you know, hard rock, but just like very intricate, almost like art rock. And, uh, you know, again, but very, very good. Kelly and Ludzik would trade back and forth on the, on the harmonies, on the vocals. Uh, Kelly had the higher voice, so if Jerry had a pad, Kelly would go and jump on top of that. But they worked well together. They had a good stage act. They would go and go shoulder to shoulder, and you know. And uh, but uh, Dakota was a, was a was a good band, and uh, and yeah, more successful than uh, than the Boys as far as audience, 
as far as album productivity, as far as associating with, with rock royalty. So if, if you want to define success like that, then yeah, they, they pulled that off. So uh, was there a point at which the boys just stopped touring, stopped functioning as a band? Yeah, the last thing they did was um, Don't Cry Blue. And it was on Ransom Records. And Tom Fox, who was the manager of, of the boys, he was from Ransom, Pennsylvania. So they just had an independent label. They uh, put, you know, put out that song. Chris Hanlon, the drummer, was sort of just uh, burnt out at the time. And he didn't even play on some of those sessions. He didn't play drums. They had to get the guy, another guy from a New York session drummer. So uh, that was the last thing they did. It didn't resonate, nobody played it. I mean, it was a nice song, but there was no uh, backing, no corporate backing, because it was their own label. They didn't do anything with it. So that was um, uh, the, the, the end. But what happened was when the boys uh, stopped doing their show, Dakota pretty much stopped at the same time. So both bands took it as far as they could, and, uh, and then you know, and just stopped doing it. Now, in the book, there are various figures that kind of come and go from the story. Uh, one is Frank Zappa. Oh, yeah, yeah. At point, the boys met him. What, what was that experience like for them? Well, for, first of all, Frank, Frank, in case the world doesn't know this, Frank Zappa is a genius. And I talk, about, I talk a lot about him. Um, first of all, the, the song uh, Smoke on the Water by uh, uh, Deep, Deep Purple. Purple, thank you, was about Frank Zappa. And Frank Zappa was on stage in Switzerland, and, so, and there was a, like a netting over the stage, and some idiot was drunk or stoned and threw a firebomb into the netting, and the whole thing got torched. And Frank Zappa and, his, and the band had to run off the stage, or else they were going to die. They were going to be burnt. So uh, members of uh, Deep Purple were going to rent that, that stage and record the next day. So they were there. So they wrote Smoke on the Water based on what they saw with Frank Zappa. But... Timothy being banned and censored, I have a chapter there talking about censorship and uh, some of these songs like Street Fighting Man, you know, during the Chicago Democratic Convention that was, that was banned by the mayor. Uh, but Frank Zappa was not for censorship. You know, he believed in a free society. Interesting, today when you have so many, you know, I, I spent six months in Florida and they're big into banning books and it's just a scary climate that people are actually uh, banning some of these these, these, these uh, classics. But Frank Zappa was certainly against that. He was a libertarian and he wasn't into drugs. He smoked and uh, maybe um, uh, drank a little bit of beer, but uh, he wasn't into the drugs. But his philosophy was that if you want to use drugs, go right ahead, but don't get behind the wheel and you know, endanger somebody's life and don't have your drug use impact on anybody else. But if you choose to do that, go right ahead. That's your business. So that was his philosophy. Another thing with when Tipper Gore tried to have the labels on the, on the CDs, parental, you know, uh, uh, about parental approval, there were certain, certain records that were sexual. I think Prince had a song called Nicky Baby that was about somebody masturbating. And when Tipper Gore and her daughter were listening to this Prince song, supposedly she went, became very irate and decided to go and, and censor some of these things. So they had this code. Uh, the stickers, and she debated Frank Zappa, you know, over these labels. Now, of course, uh, Frank didn't have a chance because, you know, the things were swinging the other way, but they did put the labels on it, but that, in its sense, sort of backfired because, you know, a lot of these kids, they would see this label with explicit content, and they would buy it because maybe they wanted that. 
you know, but Frank wasn't for that. And again, you know, the book is relevant and censorship is relevant because today, what do we do when you have uh, a lot of these news uh, uh, sources that are putting out information that is misinformation or misleading or, you know, has a, has a, uh, a political agenda? And, and what do we do? I mean, do we censor that or do we allow that in a free marketplace, you know, and uh, we, uh, we as Americans are dealing with that topic right now, but I discuss censorship uh, quite a bit in my book because that was relevant to the song Timothy that was banned and censored and, you know, is symbolic of what's happening today. Now, one of the interesting little facts that you have in the book is about uh, Chris Hanlon, former band member. Apparently, he runs a restaurant yeah. and he has a Timothy Burger. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we should go up there and get one. He's on Route 6. I think it's Chris's uh, barbecue. And um, the boys just recently got together. It was May 14th. They got together in Wilkes-Barre at Gennetti's, and uh, they had like 700 people there. They got together you know, probably the last time, because all those guys are in their 70s, but Chris was there, and uh, I had the best seat in the house. I mean, I was like as close to Bill Kelly as I am to you, and uh, Chris was there playing his drums, but man, he is just so skillful. It was fun watching him. And then what was interesting, John Buckley was there on stage. Now, that's the first time that Bill Kelly and John Buckley were on stage together, because remember, when Kelly left, Buckley replaced him. And Buckley was singing all of his songs, so that was, you know, interesting to see that. Uh, one of the other figures that comes up, there, there are a lot of little people who kind of make their way through the story. Uh, Frank Virtue, who was he? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, uh, Philadelphia um, uh, record guy. He had a studio there, so a lot of people went to uh, uh, to Frank the Virtual Studios, and uh, you could have a record. With your own label, you could conjure up a label, and he would and he would get, uh, produce so many sides for you. He also had a shooting range there, so the, there was a shooting gallery there. But a lot of people, I think the Wazoo's, I'm pretty sure the Wazoo's are in my book that they went to Virtuous Studios to record their Inside of Me. And then another interesting tidbit, if I may, uh, the Wazoo's became a band called Great Bear. They recorded the song on Scepter Records. Now, just as uh, in 1971, when uh, Timothy was charting, was peaking, Scepter was, was folding. And what they did was Scepter put out this album by Great Bear, the song from, from the uh, region, and they took them around on a little tour like Boston and then down to Atlanta. And then at some point, they pulled back on the album. They wanted all the albums and all the promotional materials back. And to this day, the members of Great Bear don't know why exactly that was, other than they were thinking that Scepter was just falling apart and, and the ship was going down, the ship was sinking. So that was interesting. But again, it was a, it was a nice album. You know, it would have benefited from promotion and from airplay, but, you know, it was Yank. So just uh, another unfortunate story in the, in the world of rock and roll. Now, you mentioned the Wazoos, and you say in the book that they're part of an amazing musical experiment. Why? Yeah, because, uh, again, I talked about 1967, all of that wonderful, wonderful experimentation that was happening. I mean, anything that you wanted to do as a, as a musician, you could. But with the Wazoos, they um, uh, used a, uh, an instrument that was made in Pennsylvania. And uh, I think uh, the Mighty Manfred, I'm trying to think the name of the, the band that uh, 
who was using that. They were from Philadelphia, but the Wazoo's got one of those and used that for just the, uh, you know, a, a very uh, unique psychedelic sound for Inside of Me. And that was on their own label that was cut at Frank Virtue Studios. How did you end up becoming a rock journalist? Yeah, that, you know, that's an interesting question. I think, I think uh, in Freudian terms, you know, I mean, I'd much rather have been up, up on stage playing a, a Stratocaster and listening to the screaming fans and all that. But, you know, I never uh, put in the work, so that wasn't going to happen. But there's a term called sublimation. And uh, if I may, I'd like to answer the question in two ways. One, sublimation. If you can't do plan A, you go to plan, plan B. And so as a young person, I would listen to, I had these composition books, I would listen to songs. I would find a song, write it down, find out who wrote it, who produced it, the label, and then try to find out what the B-side was. So I was sort of like a music geek. I mean, I just loved that, that intel, that information. And for some reason, I just needed to know. The other thing, too, and I think maybe more importantly, there's a Japanese philosophy. And it says that if you can find the thing that brings you joy, and if that thing makes the world a better place, and if that thing brings you money, then you've found your, your purpose in life. So, you know, writing uh, about, um, you know, uh, uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and the coal region and preserving that history is just something that, I mean, I feel honored to do. And um, the other thing I feel that if, if I don't do this, nobody else is going to, nobody else, else has the passion or interest or motivation to do this. So I enjoy doing this, and it's just, uh, you know, it's not a hardship. It's just a, a wonderful thing. And I'm just so uh, thrilled, you know, thus far at the response that somebody else's dream has been netting. It's just been uh, a great experience, and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, thankful and appreciative. Do you find that people in the Northeast region uh, still remember Timothy and the, and the band? Yeah, absolutely, and, and, uh, and I'm making it a point of it. Uh, again, when uh, I do my interviews back home, I talk about, you know, we're celebrating the 50-year anniversary of Timothy, which was the, one of the most controversial songs in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and also one of the highest charting songs by any rock act from Northeastern Pennsylvania. So uh, the song's uh, important. It's symbolic. People that didn't know about it know about it now, and um, yeah, it's it's good to be the uh, the messenger of uh, you know of Timothy. Well, we've been speaking with Maxim Furek. He is the author of Somebody Else's Dream, Dakota, The Boys, and Timothy. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a five hundred one c three nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.